Hey there, it's Derek Duncan from Feed the Ball, and this is the Salon Podcast, what we're calling Volume 23. This is the thing I do with the big guy, Jim Urbina, the Magellan of Golf Course Architects, and my co-host. We're speaking this episode with Jason Straka. Jason has been in the design business for a long time, and in fact, we'll hear him and Jim talk about the first time they met way back in the Clinton years, I believe, when Jason was an aspiring landscape architecture student. Straka later went on to work in 1995 for Michael Herdson and Dana Fry and supported them until 2012 when Herdson and Fry went their separate ways. Fry and Straka then formed their own firm and have developed into one of the most high-profile design companies in the U.S. The types of jobs and projects they've been getting the last five or six years puts them right behind the likes of Gil Hance, Bill Coor, Tom Doak, and maybe David Kidd, and you'd be hard-pressed to find two designers with as much range as they have demonstrated with projects from renovations to classic restorations to new courses and complete strip-downs and rebuilds. Straka is a designer and environmental expert with advanced degrees in turfgrass and agronomy. He's also the president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, picking up where his predecessor, Forrest Richardson, left off in trying to move the state organization away from its clubby, somewhat insulated and protectionist tradition into a more open and inviting society that actually hopes to make a positive impact on golf and participation and development that goes well beyond simply advocating for its members. If you like this podcast, please go to your podcast provider and leave a star rating and brief review. And if you really care to support us, share the link to this podcast and others with your friends and industry connections. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. Jim is too savvy to subject himself to social media. And you can find past episodes of the podcast at FeedTheBall.com, including our original talk with Dana Fry from 2020. Those dirty clothes that are piling up in your hamper and laundry room, you don't need hot or even warm water to clean them. The miracle of modern detergent means you can hit them with cold water, straight tap temperature. Washing on cold saves energy, saves money, and helps save our precious resources. And my clothes have never been cleaner. This is a wide-ranging off-script conversation that even gets emotional and heartfelt at times. Jason Straka is immensely intelligent and passionate, and it was a pleasure to listen to him elaborate on various topics. I know you'll enjoy hearing him too. But first... Jim Urbina would like to read a quote. You know, Derek, I often wonder when I'm out on a golf site, when I'm out looking at new topography, I'm restoring and consulting on an old golden age design. I wonder what the golf designer, the golf builder, the architect's role is. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read you this quote from Designs on Golf by Weather than Simpson. Do you mind? I'd love to hear it. And I quote, A dull, stereotype course is not satisfying to anyone, least of all to the designer himself, because it gives the player nothing to discover. It is read like a book and fails to interest him. A course with the subtlety of St. Andrews can never be read easily, or learnt by heart. The fact that everything is not visible to the eye adds to its fascination, even to the extent that it may be necessary to play to certain points in order to gain visibility. 
many of these finer shades may easily be overlooked by the ordinary observer. The task of the architect is therefore to create, if he can, this atmosphere of interest, to invent secrets that lie beneath the surface, even appearances that can be partly misleading, many inviting spaces left opening only to flatter and to deceive, end quote. So as a golf course construction builder, designer, architect. We are simply asking the architect to make sure the book is not boring. And I wonder sometimes, Derek, if we don't take that simple premise, not to do 100 golf courses a year, but to do one or two golf courses a year, so that you invent secrets, mislead golfers, make sure that the interest level never wanes. And that's what we've always talked about at St. Andrews and other golf courses. The architect, what is his role? That's what Weatherland Simpson felt in designs on golf was the important factor. Maybe there's more. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. I I do. I do. I, f- I first have to keep in mind the the era in which they're writing, which is the 1920s, and they're reflecting back on courses from, from this era and the 19-teens uh, and, and previously. So the world of golf at that point looked a lot different than it does today. When I hear you read that quote, I my mind doesn't go to that era necessarily it goes to all the golf courses that i've ever seen that i know about and when you say golf courses in that quote they talk about you know a golf course should not be a stereotype well i can think of you know many many golf courses that fit into a stereotype uh that wouldn't live up to the standard that they're writing about but i think they they had a different view on it first of all in that era when uh and i and they're they're their viewpoint is also British courses, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so yes. I, I, I'm, this yes. is, you know, member courses, public golf is not uh, as popular as member play. It's a very particular class of people outside of, you know, the towns, the little links villages, you have public play and you have uh, residents who go out and, and play these golf courses. But I, I think they're also referring to the, the courses that have been built inland in and around London and, and just er- and everything that had been built in the last 20 years, probably. And, those golf courses, I think, could afford to, and those architects could afford to really put the detail into the courses at the high end uh, because of their clientele. Uh, so so their stereotype courses are probably not very good golf courses by any objective standard. Um, but if I, if I when I think about that course, I, uh, that quote, there really what comes to mind are maybe three different types of courses, sort of that, that general generic golf course that we see across America everywhere we go. Every town has just generic courses that were built you know, quickly, cheaply for uh, public consumption um, without a lot of overt architectural ambition behind them. They were there to be functional and provide pleasure. You have something that we got in the you know 80s and really in the 90s these big super duper super show show explosion blockbuster golf courses that cost a lot of money and they look fantastic and they have the waterfall and those would be the equivalent of you know uh, 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 
a big studio summer release blockbuster movie, you know, Iron Man seven, these kind of things that are, people are going to like come and see, and they're going to be entertained, but they're, they're not going to watch it a third and fourth and fifth time, but it's going to, it's going to hit you in the face and it's going to be a a nice two and a half hours or in golf, a nice seven hour round. But then you have the, the, the highest art, you know, where the, the, the artist is putting into the picture, motifs and references and small brush strokes and and putting on layers and it's the kind of painting that you have to see over and over again and go back and stand and stare at and understand something about the artist and why they painted it and what the subject matter is and the more you get to know the painting the more you appreciate it and that's the kind of golf courses that they're talking about and that that ever that's the highest form of golf course architecture is to build in that subtlety and nuance that's going to not be able to register on the first play or the second play or the third play. And it's not going to register uh, to the person who just passes through. When I go to see golf courses, Jim, I, I probably see them once. Maybe if I'm lucky, I'll see them twice. So I have to look incredibly hard to try to locate nuance. And I know I don't see it all the time. It's impossible. And sometimes it's not there. But, uh, you know, it, it's so I think what there's what they're saying is they're they're outlining a the ideal of what the architect should be doing but it also i'll flip it back to you uh it does matter who the who the clientele is if, if it is a members course and you have people who are going to be playing there every day for many years you can you can take your time putting in the subtlety and the nuance and the slow reveals and the hidden tricks if it's a resort course or a public course you kind of need to get in and out and make your impression pretty fast you got to have those Maybe those special effects and and the green screen and the CGI uh, special effects in cinema is 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 necessary and, uh, because that's that's your demographic. So uh, yeah. it depends on on the project. I think. I guess I don't want anybody to have a boring book, as they refer to. Yeah. I guess I want them to want to discover and read it over and over and find the fascinations and the parts of the of the of the shades uh, the finer shades as they say and so that's the part i continue to struggle with i totally agree with you that there are certain golf courses and certain owners that just want you to provide an entertaining outdoor experience with friends but I keep getting drawn back to the architecture of Weather than Simpson, and they talk about the subtleties, the finer shades, the fascinations, not visible to the eye. Seek them out over and over. And if given the chance to implant that design onto an owner and convince him, whether it's a flat piece of ground or, or or unbelievable topography in dunes like Mr. Mike Kaiser Sr. has worked with for years. I just want, I don't want that dull book. And I don't, I want to have the finer points. And isn't that what the architecture on every golf course architect and designer, shouldn't they aspire to? You're talking about you're talking about literature versus a thriller. You know, first of all, nobody finishes a, a boring book. You know, unless unless your teacher assigns it, you put that down after the you know page yeah, eighteen or thirty. You know, that's you just true. don't get to it. 
but it seems to me like in golf, there are two different things. You have your your thriller, your airplane book that you read, and, and it's it's built on momentum, and you keep going, and the next thing happens, and it pulls you along, and it and you consume it, and then when you're done, you kind of put it away, and it might linger with you a little bit, but it, you put it away, and you're probably never going to read it again. You know what happens. The point is to get to the end. Then you have literature. You know, you have Cervantes, you know, War and Peace, you know, James Joyce, uh, you know, Faulkner, you, these, these, these books that you have to study and get into and read multiple yeah. times and maybe yeah. have annotations to let you know. And there's, there are things in the middle too, but, but a golf course, I think a golf course, yes, yeah, should be literature. If, if you're trying to, to make a piece of art, if you're trying yeah. to achieve the highest thing that you can achieve in your profession and your field, you should, you should endeavor to make it literature and just like those books I mentioned and those authors and many more, it's going to go over the top of the heads of, of most people who read it because who who has the time to, to you know, to read a 600-page book four times to get all the illusions. But it's there for those who want it and for those people who, who come back and play the golf course and, and can study it and appreciate it. It's there and it should be there. Uh, it's like a like the quote says, it's, you know, it's a sense of discovery. It's hidden. It's a treasure yeah. once, once you find it. And... I guess for me, I know that these things are overlooked by the ordinary observer, as the quote says. And so I take these golf courses personal, Derek. <laughs> They're all my personal friend. And I want and I will ask our guest today, are all the golf courses he uh, he is involved with, with Dana Fry, are they all his personal friend? The ones that he would go to blows for. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know what I mean by that? Uh, defend by the peak, by the casual, the casual observer. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is the art that we are involved with. That is the interaction, the 3D uh three-dimensional interaction that we have with golfers who play the golf courses we're involved with. And you're right. Those, those literatures, those, those books that make you read it time and time again, maybe that's not for an everyday consumption. Maybe you do need to go have a beer and a hot dog <laughs> and just go play, right? Just go play. Well, just like the book industry, that's the majority of the offerings. That's that's what's on the shelf. That's what's widely available. You have to work a little harder to get to the to the deep stuff. But Fair on enough. that note about the difference between a, a thriller or a mystery, romance, and literature, what does that look like in golf? I I think we can all picture the the thrilling golf course, the romantic golf course, the 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 mystery golf course it's it's just you know scene after scene after scene after yeah. scene with maybe not yeah. a lot of depth maybe there's depth there literature what does that look like to me what yeah. i think about is how do you create the nuance and the subtlety and the sense of and and the hidden things and the 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 elements that take a long time to get to know i think it's in the green contours and I think that's, and you would learn those over multiple plays and seeing the whole location moved around and you get putts from, from different angles and you see the ball move in different ways that you don't expect it to. That to me is, is where a golf course can show the most nuance. And it's also the place where 
it might seem boring at first. It might seem not exciting because it's not obvious. And the thriller, as you describe the action pack, the, uh, uh, the risk and reward of golf course architecture, uh, the impactful scenes of beauty, Cypress Point, the golf course, it's just, it's one photo after another. Uh, it's a feel of a feeling of, of just utter nirvana. But then you go to the national golf links of America and there's subtleties that pass you by time and time and time again. So I don't know what that happy medium is. I can describe those golf courses to you, but I just wish there was, I just wish there was a, 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 a golf course. There's there, that there never can be, I guess I'll answer my own question. There, there can never be an all in golf course that you can describe would be, all of the things we want thriller action pack uh romantic uh i think well, i think you just said it i think the national checks all you those do? boxes i mean you think so you that's some pretty thrilling stuff out there those, those shapes and features i mean yes. that that's borderline yeah. horror movie <laughs> in some ways but it's subtle as well and it's romantic and it's beautiful and it's yeah. it moves you and and you could play it 50 times and and still yeah. come away like, well, I still don't feel like I know this golf course. That yeah. comes close to it. It does come close to it, but I think that uh, a reader, if we want to go back to a book, a reader would want to have a sense of the F word. Once again, it comes up again, <laughs> a sense of fairness. And sometimes the national is not fair. And that would be its... Uh, there's no negative in it, I guess, but that would be, some people would say, oh, it's this golf course is too, it's not fair. It doesn't reward my best shot. And I just want to laugh. Oh, well, they, they're not allowed to play there. That, they, they, <laughs> they can't say they that? They can't. No, they can't. Well, they can't go to the national. They can go play somewhere else, but they're not allowed on the <laughs> golf course if that's their mentality. <laughs> so if somebody says to me uh, uh, that the national is not their favorite, am I supposed to walk away immediately? <laughs> no, just say thank you. <laughs> I won't bump I, into you when I'm out there then. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's almost there, isn't it? It's almost the perfect book. I'll ask you one one thing, just to follow up on what I was saying a minute ago. Can you think of what comes to mind when you think of a sort of subtle set of putting greens that are great? Yeah. You know, when I think when we talk about the like the the best putting greens in golf, we tend to think about the ones that show the most character, dramatic. Yeah, yeah, that have yeah. different that that where like the hole plays you know dramatically different depending on where the hole is cut. You play to this side one day, you have to play to the other side of the fairway, the other, or just they're yeah. just beautiful to look at. What yeah. but what's it? Can you think of a a great set of greens that are truly mysterious and wonderful, but subtle as well? I know you're going to laugh, uh, and and I don't know if you've ever seen this golf course, but Western Gales in Scotland has these greens that are, compared to the dunes that they're surrounded by, are very subtle, mm. but yet very entertaining. And I don't know that I could bring 18 sets 
our 18 greens from Western Gales back to the United States of America and say, enjoy this for what they are because the surrounding property in certain parts of the golf course is so dramatic. But I can name that one. I could say easily that uh, Western Gales, those greens, that's why I fell in love with it. Uh, it, it has uh, it has all the characteristics of Lynx golf, but it also has the cool nuances of subtle greens. Not as dramatic as Presswick, not as dramatic as some of the other greens that we talk about and look at, but Western Gales, and you don't ever hear anybody talk about Western Gales. Subtle, romantic, uh, pleasing with all of the crashing waves around it. Western Gales. Yeah. I was going to say Pebble Beach. The, okay. the They're fairly level, kind of tilted, but they putts just tilted. seem to go yep. in different directions. Yeah. You could criticize yes. it by the pin placement doesn't vary your approach to most of the holes. But Agreed. once you get Agreed. on the greens, yeah. you know, they can be baffling. And, I, and I've heard, you know, re- recently they're they're doing a lot of green work out there. They just read the eighth green and they've done some other greens. So th- right. they, that, they may be actually stripping that out of the golf course as we speak. But historically, those greens were, were pretty baffling. They don't and look I, like much. And, and now that you bring that up, I'll be working at Pasa Temple. I'll probably, I will run down there and, and, and see if I could go around on the greens just to see if that, that nature that you talk about, the subtleties of the, of the next to the ocean and the beautiful uh, ground that it, that it occupies, if those greens are as entertaining and, and, and romantic as, as you, as you described. Well, speaking of beautiful golf courses and beautiful settings and places we want to play golf, golf courses that have a lot of character, uh, golf courses that can be thrilling. Uh, our guest today, Jason Strecka, has worked with Dana Fry and before that with Dr. Michael Herzen as well. And they've never failed to create golf courses that are compelling and, and interesting to look at and have a lot to think about, a lot to take in visually, uh, a lot of a lot of playing interest too. Now he's with Dana Fry, who we, we had on this, uh, this podcast uh, a while back, and they're they're getting some great jobs. They're getting some really great jobs. They've done some great work. The South course course at uh, Arcadia Bluffs is one unique style of golf. They're just finishing up or they finished up. It's open now is the union league national in South New Jersey, which is a, is that a thriller? That's a thriller. Now that could be like the kind of like the um, presumed innocence or something like the kind of thriller that also like has a nice twist in it. And so, you know, you want to, you actually want to go back and watch it again. Uh, so, but anyway, we're going to talk to him about that. They've had some beautiful jobs, some beautiful sites. They've created uh, from nothing, some, some beautiful golf scenes. And we're going to find out more about how they do it and, and what Jason th- thinks when he's on a job and what motivates him. So I look forward to talking to him. I hadn't, uh, haven't talked to him I before. Can't. I can't disagree. I know Jason from many moons ago. I look forward to reconnecting with him, and uh, uh, I can't wait. And he's and he is the current president of the yes. American Society of Golf Course Architects. So yes. he's yes. Uh, a prominent figure in the world of golf course architecture. Yeah. Good. He's out in front. He is out and he's leading. He's got a tough job. Well, maybe we'll talk about that. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank I you. wouldn't want to do it. Me neither. All right. Here's Jason Straka. <laughs> Good to see you, my friend. Jason, it's been forever and ever and ever. Well, I've known you forever and ever and ever, too. I know. 
Jason, what was your first, what was the first recollection of meeting Jim? What was, what went through your head when you met, met this big guy? Well, so I don't know if you know that full story or not. But, no, I want to hear it. Oh yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So, you know, when I was at Cornell, uh, you know, we reached out to, to, to Tom Doak and to Gil and basically begged or three of us begged and pleaded, uh, you know, for them when we were going into our senior year, we had these six credit studio classes. And so if you could write a proposal, they would let you do a senior thesis, um, you know, and basically over that six credit class. And so, you know, we wanted to do, you know, everything we were doing at the time, there were three of us in golf course design. And so Tom had agreed to, to do that, somehow swindled Jim into helping. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he said, well, he goes, we're looking at this project out by the new Denver airport. Uh, and he said, so that's, you know, that's what you guys are going to do. Okay, buy your tickets to go meet Jim Urbina in Denver. <laughs> So I don't know, I was maybe 19 at the time, I don't know, something like that. So that was it. So we went around, let's see, Jim, if I remember right, that's a long time ago, but you took us to, I remember going to, to Cherry Hills. We went to yep. Riverdale Dunes, Yep. 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 went out to the site. And yes. so yes. basically Jim had helped then, you know, essentially helped Tom, uh, you know, go through this whole, taught us that class. I mean, it was for, you know, a whole, however long, you know, semester. And so we're attached at the hip and I still, to this day, I tease Jim because we had our, so our final presentation, you know, and you get all the kids and the professors and you go through this whole thing. And so here you think that you've learned all of this, you know, information and you're going to put your best foot forward and you're doing these final presentations and, in typical Jim Urbina fashion, we get to, it was the 14th hole. I'll never forget you to this day, uh, Derek, but he looks at me and he goes, finally, and finally what Jim, he goes, finally a hole I'm interested in building. <laughs> this was like fictitious, you know, planning, like you're doing your final project in like LA class. Yeah. You know, so it just, so it's, uh, it was all good. I mean, that's, you know, he was one of my early, Derek, it was me and Tom and Gil are my early mentors. Was Jim, was Jim an intimidating guy? Well, I mean, for a 19-year-old, sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's out building some of the best courses in the world. And, you know, I mean, you're excited to learn, obviously. Yeah. yeah. I apologize that uh, for that, Jason. Uh, Derek, uh, to, def to defend myself, uh, I was a teacher by trade uh, early on. I taught high school drafting, and I never wanted to coddle somebody. And I thought that by simply saying after several holes, Derek, would he have remembered if I said it was the first hole, what a great job? No, no, he wouldn't have remembered that. He remembered that he had to go through the back nine <laughs> <laughs> before he – he he uh in my in my humbled opinion was something that was uh eye catching and derek we talk about this all the time we talk about what someone is looking for in their in their expression of their art and and their craft and jason had some holes that were uh with no disrespect very uh 
normal, so to speak. And when uh, I don't re- recall the 14th hole exactly, but it had to have been something that uh, I had never seen before and was applicable to the land that he was, we were walking on. And, and that was in the middle of a ravine. Uh, this, this, this golf site was wrapped around a barranca, they call in California, a gorge, a washout. And the three people that day, we were walking the site looking at that. And, and with no disrespect, uh, if I'd have said, wow, that first hole is really good, <laughs> we would have never had this discussion, Derek, never. Well, and Derek, the funny thing is, is that so after a 30 year career and you have you know, all this collateral, all this information, all these, you know, sketches and plans and site reviews and all these things, I probably don't even know where half of that stuff is, but I can tell you exactly where I have my plans from that class. With Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what's, Jason, what's your assessment of your work at that formative period in your life? When you look at that plan, what do you think now? Well, I mean, I don't in your balls or did you have a good point? Oh, no. I mean, you certainly had a good point. I mean, (laughs) nobody really knew what they were doing. I mean, we were we were learning. That's what we were. You know, that was being exposed to that. I know that was and, you know, I know that that was one of your questions. I mean, but, you know, what an opportunity, you know, I mean, it's one thing to go out in the field and build. And, you know, we, we all did that you know, at some point early, early on in your career. But I mean, how many people really have an opportunity to learn from, you know, a Jim Rabina, a Tom Doak, a Gil Hands, you know, and going through that. And even though that they were early on in their careers, I mean, they were, you know, they were the up and comers and just signing the big new projects. And I mean, what a, you know, I was afforded something as somebody who came from a very small school in Ohio, you know, that, 99.999% 99.999% of everybody else in my field would can never can only even dream of if yeah. you know if that and and that leads me into that question Derek that that I wanted to ask Jason he went to Cornell he left Ohio the comforts of Ohio he followed in the footsteps of Robert Trent Jones and Gil Hands other ASGCA architects and when you look back at that Jason and you reflect on that, you could have gone anywhere. You could have gone to Ohio State. You could have gone to Kansas State. Uh, several other golf uh, uh, architecture-type schools. Why Cornell, and was that the smartest move you ever made? Uh, I, well, certainly from um, looking back in my life, Jim, yeah, I would say that that's probably, the you know, I don't want to say the smartest move, but probably the luckiest move that I ever made. Uh, you know, listen, I, I came from a family of, uh, you know, my father was a school teacher and a football coach. And so things were pretty strict and in our house. And, you know, we both my sister and I did well academically. We got recruited to a lot of different places, you know, from being from such a small school. Um, you know, most of my friends, you know, went to Ohio State, you know, predominantly or Youngstown State or Cleveland State, places like that. And so, you know, I had one teacher, um, you know, again, we, it's much different, you know, now, I mean, I look at the you know classes my kids have and, you know, we were able to take, we had one choice of one physics class or one chemistry class or, you know, so this wasn't, it was a good school, but it wasn't a magnet school. It was just a rural school. And so, uh, you know, I got this piece of information, you know, keep in mind now, this is before the internet and all of that. So you get this, you know, this brochure, hard brochure that comes in the mail 
And I remember taking it to my uh, English teacher at the time. And I said, do I even have a chance to get into some, you know, school like this? And she said, well, you know, why not? And, and the big, you know, biggest message was, if you don't take a risk and you don't try, you're never going to know. And so, you know, I, I loved architecture, specifically landscape architecture. You know, at the time, that was a top rated program in the country. So you talk about intimidating. And so we went there for a visit and you know, this all tied into my golf career because I so much love outdoors. And so I grew up uh, camping and fishing and hunting. And, you know, to this date in my life, I've done six backcountry uh, wilderness trips. Uh, and so, you know, when I would come home, I'd grab my fishing pole or in the winter time, I'd go out, you know, and you go for an hour and go you know, hunting in the woods or the fields. And that's just how I grew up. And so when I went and I looked at Cornell, you know, and there's this elite university in this rural setting and beautiful waterfalls and it just it made me feel at ease and at home. And then when you started to really dive into what they offered there, you know, and said, okay, well, this is interesting. Robert Trent Jones went to school there. Why did he go there? Well, you know, predominantly it was because he could study landscape architecture, but it allowed him the freedom to pick and choose classes in surveying and irrigation and civil engineering, agricultural engineering. And then when you start to understand what the motto of the university is and how they really adapt and let you sort of figure out what you want to do, you know, they don't pigeonhole you into a box, you know, then that became a real, you know, draw. And then when you start to understand then some of the architects at the time who came out of that university, you know, it was pretty, um, you know, pretty special, you know, I mean, at that time, you know, then it was Tom, you know, and Gil in particular. Uh, and then of course, RTJ and, you know, but when I went there, that just opened up the doors, for example, to meet you, Jim. I mean, I, you know, I don't know that I'm where I'm at today without, you know, getting into that university and, and electing to go. And that was a big step. You know, I mean, it was expensive. My my parents worked three jobs between the two of them, night and day, you know, to put me through school there. Uh, and it was a big step. But, you know, it certainly has formed my life. And for that, I'll forever be grateful. Jason, There you go, Derek. There you go. I mean, this is a 19-year-old, 18-year-old deciding what he wants to do early on in life. And uh, <laughs> let's see how the dominoes fall on my way uh, to this to this dream. And it is it is pretty amazing who he got to meet and who he got to follow in the footsteps of. Jason, it's it seem it seems like that is the, the way you did it is and, and I could be wrong about this and if I am you'll correct me, but it seems like the way that you did it to go to Cornell and to build your your degrees is almost uh, a, a avenue into the field of golf course architecture that is less relevant now, and maybe it's changed altogether. My perception is that most of the people that are coming up for the last 10, 15 years didn't go that route. They didn't go through the university. They might have degrees from universities, but they didn't go in specifically planning to be a golf course architect. They're coming up working for people like Jim, and they're they're on equipment and tractors, and they're they're self studying. Um, they're not their education isn't as, as formal. Is is that way that you did it? going through all the proper channels of getting the degrees and making the connections and um, working as an associate, is that still a valid way to get into your profession or have things changed since the mid nineties? Yeah, Derek, I think it's still, I know it's still valid, but I mean, even to this day, even if you went back 
50 years ago, 60 years ago. I mean, I think that there's a perception that that's sort of the predominant way that people come into the business. And and maybe if you look at the percentages, it is. But I mean, look at, you know, Pete Dye. I mean, he was an insurance salesman. Um, You know, you look at others from the golden age who were doctors, surveyors, right? And I mean, and they made these adaptations. But it's like so many other professions that you take the skills that you learn and, you know, and then adapt them, you know, to what you're working on. You know, so, you know, my, the formative years, Derek at Cornell, you know, for me, again, fortunate because then, you know, meeting Jim and Tom and Gil, even though, you know, that, uh, you know, with, with Tom and Gil going to Cornell and having that academic background, you know, they still professed, listen, you need to get in the field. You know, and to that point, you know, prior to being at Cornell, you know, I knew that. And I actually, I worked as a greenskeeper for three years. You know, my father, you know, having, uh, you know, time after school and then during the summer months, you know, when he was early, you know, he worked at golf courses. And so he made, um, you know, these connections. And so, uh, you know, I went and I got a job working as a greenskeeper. And I remember the course that we worked at, we put in a new irrigation system and we remodeled bunkers. And we didn't necessarily even have, you know, an architect or designer. It was a municipal golf course. And I remember they had a young greenskeeper for some reason at the time they ended up letting go. And I remember the the gentleman comes up to me, he was operating the course. And there was another kid, uh, literally a kid at the time. And he said, just so you know, the two of you are going to, or you're going to run the maintenance on the golf course for the summer. What? You know, I remember like, what are you talking about? Well, you two are the most responsible. You've been here the longest. And so, you know, this is your third year and your guys are going to run, run the maintenance of the golf course. I mean, could you imagine turning that over to an 18 year old kid, 19 year old kid at the time? And, you know, we made mistakes, but, uh, you know, I was afforded, you know, different opportunities and the ability to fail, to go out and to do things. I mean, I don't know that anybody would allow you to do that nowadays, uh, and so, you know, here we are, you know, and, and I knew that going to landscape architecture school and becoming a golf course architect, that you were going to have this special relationship with the golf course superintendents at the time. And every decision that you make in building the golf course from the ground up is going to have an impact on how it's maintained and how it's maintained on the design, too. And so, you know, I fully understood that. And that was the reason why I worked in the field at a golf course. Um, and then, uh, you know, similar was after Jim and Tom and Gil said, listen, you need to go out and get construction experience. I did that. I went and I worked for McDonald and Sons, you know, and they're a boutique builder that works all over the country now, you know, a lot of high-end courses. And so I went and I worked for them for a couple of years to the point where I actually started their design build company, um, you know, before I left to come back to Ohio. So it's, you know, again, it's the sort of the long answer to, you know, it's not, there's just not one path to get into the business, you know, and personally, I think that some of your strongest designers are the ones that, you know, have some academic training, have the field experience, have operating experience, greenskeeper experience, you know, it makes for a well-rounded individual. I can tell you, Derek, that, uh, watching Jason, watching the people he worked for, watch him, go to the to the highest stature of of architecture in the asgca becoming the president of the asgca jason i know that you never sat in that classroom at cornell and said you know what i think i'm going to become the president 
of the ASGCA. <laughs> no. no, no, you didn't. So when you chose that route to become the president, were you just simply doing the same thing that other presidents had done? Or were you willing to try a new spin on the presidency of the ASGCA? Jim, I, you know, I fully believe that the health of any organization, you know, is, is fully in the people and its members, you know, to, you know, one of the things that frustrates me the most, you know, and I know that I probably personally can never change it, for example, is that Tom is not a member. You know, he doesn't necessarily want to be a member. And, you know, that's also part of Tom's personality. But to have the greatest impact on golf and the greatest good is that I want as many qualified practicing architects. I don't care what your background is. I don't care if you just specialize in restorations or renovations you know, if you are doing work in the world of golf course architecture, you know, I value your input. Um, we all do it differently. We all have different outcomes, you know, but, you know, working with other sister organizations like the USGA or the golf course builders or the owners or whomever it may be, or even then working with the realm of, you know, in the, for me in the environmental permit aspect, you know, and the policies and things, and particularly in our country, that shape how golf courses can get built, and how they can get maintained and managed. A collective voice, um, you know, many times is far more powerful than individual voices. And so that was something that, you know, as I started to sort of go up through the leadership positions in, in the architecture society that I wanted to make very clear that I wanted to change the perception, you know, of, of many times of what ASGCA was, um, the architects who were to come in, that they were all welcome, not only welcome, but that they were wanted and desired, and that we were going to take a far more active role in um, reaching out to those people, you know, and to communicate those messages. And, you know, even though you only have one short year, you know, that's something that I've been really working hard on, uh, Jim. And that's, you know, I can say that that's likely is, you know, I don't want to speak for my predecessors, but, you know, if you look through past decades, I'm sure that that's a lot different than than what other presidents have done. It does seem like there's a change in mentality about the the role of the ASGCA. I what, agree. What they can what they can do, what they what you want, what kind of change you want to effect. And one of them, as you just mentioned, it is inclusion and, and expanding the, the outreach and the umbrella. And I don't feel like, as you just referenced, that was the mission before, especially like if you go back to a certain period of time in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it was, from my perspective, it was more clubby. It was exclusionary. Right. I've heard many stories about people who were qualified, but didn't get in for this or that reason, or some, some member didn't, you know, didn't want to approve their their membership. So um, I think it's a positive that the AHGCA is maybe trying to redefine itself and its role in golf and golf course architecture. It has a, a potentially a big voice. It has potentially, if everybody kind of works together and, and, and chooses to use the voice, it could, it could be prominent, but it hasn't always been. It's always sort of been a behind the doors kind of organization. So how much change can you affect from your perspective, from what you've seen so far? Well, I mean, I, I look at it in small victories, you know, so for example, you know, there are some younger designers, uh, you know, 
I don't know if I'm younger or not anymore, Derek, you know, so I just turned 50 <laughs> yeah, last Tell me week. about it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but I look at, you know, some of the younger uh, designers, you know, who have been reaching out to and having those conversations. Several of them are now members. Some of them are in the application process. So I see those as small but very important, you know, wins, if you will. Um, you know, then communicating, just, just simply having this discussion, right, in this form right now, to me, is a win. You know what I, you know what I tell some of my friends and colleagues because I'm whether you're a, me- a member or not. You know I'm, I, I just I'm friends with pretty much everybody. You know, but I'd call up and I'd say, listen, you know, I got a phone call the other day, uh, you know, from some panicked superintendent leaders down in Florida, and there was some proposed legislation on the books, and this happened both here and in California. Um, you know about management construction, which of uh, golf courses, which went directly into design parameters. And so, you know, who did they call? You know, they called ASGCA, you know, and so those are really important things for us. You know, it's not talking about how a golf course gets built or what your design philosophy is, but it's, you know, for the, goes directly to the health of the game, you know, and how we build and manage golf courses. And so, you know, having that voice, you know, if you want to have a positive impact on golf course design, you know, and, and some of it obviously through, um, you know, permitting parameters, it's important that your message gets communicated. How else is it going to get communicated? You know, when, when those people were in need down in Florida or in California, they called ASGCA head office. And so we were able to mobilize and react to that. And in fact, we even reached out even beyond just the ASGCA borders, if you will, and brought in non-members to help, you know, communicate. But, you know, without, without that happening or that recognition, you know, then I think that golf is at a bigger disadvantage. Certainly our organization is at a bigger disadvantage. And so those are the types of messages, you know, that I'm bound to determine to communicate, uh, you know, to people. If I had another five years at it, you know, would I do more? Sure. Yeah. You know, but I've got this year and then I have one more year. As pe- that doesn't mean I stop as, a, you know, when I'm off of the, the executive committee, you know, I mean, to this, you know, till, till the day I'm done. I will still continue to push that message, you know, but that's just, it means a lot to me, obviously. And Derek, I had once told a member of the ASGCA, if they just kept Pete on for, for its entire life, uh, that would have been a good thing because he was such a unfiltered voice, sometimes good yep. and sometimes bad, but it was an honest voice. And so I would say to Jason, uh, why don't you just not let the other guy come on and you stay on for another year. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, the, the other guy who's coming on, you know, he's, he's very, he, you know, he's very capable too. And he's got, you know, it, there is a very big shift within that organization. You know, the younger the members, I mean, it's, it, there are a lot of younger members now, you know, that share that same message. You know, we've changed membership uh, applications. We've changed, you know, even the, the timelines. There's a lot internally that we've changed to make it a much more welcoming, you know, organization. Um, you know, we, for example, Jim, I was, um, you know, we had a, a awesome, awesome get get together at Sand Hills earlier in the season, and you know, they were um, they were gracious enough to host us the weekend before their opening date. We had Bill and Ben, you know, were out there, and we talked a lot about the and Dave Axlund and talked a lot about the. Um, you know, the creation of that facility, we had basically half ASGC members and half non-members and had dinners together and shared time together. 
broke bread together. And I mean, and those are the types of things, you know, that really go a long ways in professional and personal development. Because Jason, when I look and read about your development and I read about your associations and I read about your education and I read about all the things that you are a part of, not everybody can do that. But hearing you say that it doesn't matter what background you come from, all are welcome. Uh, what a difference, Derek, from 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> what a difference. And so uh, I'm impressed with Jason's uh, well-rounded uh, uh, education, and yet it doesn't matter if he's talking to a shaper, a builder, a guy who runs a rake. They have a common interest, and that's pretty damn cool. I think it goes back to Jim that, like like you're seeing in in golf in many different levels, there's a generational turnover, and Jason and I are about the same age, we're the same generation, and it's not really us, but the but the generations behind us are much more um, open to to working with each other, collaborating, sharing, and as as those that mentality, that generational shift in in how you think about your relationship to others, they're, they're not as, as reactive or protective. You know, the old saying that, that Ron Witten made the famous comment, he said, you know, golf course architects are the most insecure bunch of people I've ever been around. I think that <laughs> attitude or mindset or, or is, is phasing out. And as the, a society like the ASGCA uh, continues to grow, you're going to get a, a, def, a different outlook on it, which Jason represents, and I'm sure you're seeing it with the new younger guys that have applied recently and coming on. They're just, they just think differently. They're just more open. They're more communal. They're, they're, they share, they're maybe more optimistic. They're not as guarded. And that's all a good thing that can only be good for golf in, in every direction as I see it. I don't disagree. And, and Bill Core did reach out to me, invited me to the Sand Hills, And what he didn't invite place... me. What <laughs> Where was my invitation? Next time I get an invite, I'll send you one. But I I'll drive you there. You, How about that? Okay, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. But I will tell you that no better place to meet and gather and talk is with those two guys, Bill and Ben, and then in a setting like the Sandhills, so that you're not that you're not uh, sidetracked and, and 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 pulled aside by cell phones and emails. Uh, and you're you have a common denominator, old school golf, and so you guys are right on track, Jason. Uh, and I've talked to some of those young kids that that are considered joining. So uh, all all good to you, all good to you. Appreciate that. And that's the second. You know, we'll, we'll be going into the third year. We had to take a hiatus because of the pandemic, but we actually did it. We started it at Ohupi. So we worked with uh, with Gil and Jim and got that set up and we had a very similar event you know the uh, two it would have been three years ago now at ohupi um similar sort of venue right i mean it's just a retreat where you're away from every everything and everybody and your distractions and played a little golf together and yeah. and had design discussions and debates and i mean it was just a what a great way to learn and we're going to continue that i mean that's just going to keep happening again and again and again so derek if they lit the fire and i was at the fire pit Here's the first question I'd ask all those nutballs. Is the golden age of design overrated or underrated? Jason? 
don't know that it's either at this point. You know, I think that it, for a certain uh, time there when we were in the, I don't even know, want to call it the heyday, but whatever you want to call it, the generation of the late 90s and 2000s when we were building a lot of, you know, uh, housing golf courses and things like that, it was probably underrated, um, you know, at that time anyway. It certainly isn't that way, you know, anymore. Um, I don't know that it's even overrated at this point. I think that there's just a deeper appreciation, you know, for what happened then. And, you know, to me, it's fascinating to watch, you know, all of these significant, you know, restorations, whatever you want to call them. If it's a true restoration, right, that becomes a whole other podcast debate over what the <laughs> right rest, true restoration is, uh, you know, and all these other different terms. Um, you know, but all the work that's happening on the classical golf courses. Uh, you know, and it's probably it's to say to make them more relevant or shouldn't even say make them more relevant, but keep their relevancy. You know, it's uh, they're always relevant, you know, but because the game has changed so significantly over the past 20 and 30 years, you know, to make them where they're, I guess, even more appreciated by the people that are playing a modern game of golf, you know, is probably the best way I can state it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just marvel at the work that's happening you know, right now, um, from so many of our different colleagues and, you know, uh, the vast majority of it, excellent work. Everybody's got their own, maybe a little take on it. Um, but you know, I mean, I'm just, uh, we're talking to somebody the other day and I was, went out to Eastward Ho and somebody had mentioned, yes, matter of fact, yesterday, and they said, we're going to go out and play Eastward Ho. And I said, probably one of the most underrated or underappreciated under-acknowledged clubs, you know, courses, you know, after their uh, restorative work, you know, that um, so many outside of our industry really don't know much about. Um, and it's just, uh, I, I think it's great. I mean, it, I, I think it's great to watch what's happening. Jason, I defend golden age designs. Uh, I don't know that I can defend modern designs as easily. Would you say that you would defend a modern design more on its merits of today and the technology of today. And just, I'm not saying discount golden age, but it's, it, it's, it's easier to look into the future instead of looking into the past. Is that a fair statement? Uh, yeah, I don't, um, <laughs> you know, I guess it depends on what you mean by modern design right now. Right. That's my so, question. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, so we talk about you could say modern, modern design is, 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 you know, old McDonald that's modern, <laughs> you know, stream song courses are modern, you know, <laughs> or you, or you could look at, you know, the out, you know, Pete Dye's courses, you yeah. know, the, those are modern golf courses. Yeah. But so, yeah. or, it, right. And there's, and there, and, and there's so much diversity. I think Jim, you know, from my perspective, I think that the diversity is a good thing that the diversity is done well, right? So somebody may not necessarily like a Pete Dye, you know, style golf course, but I think that there are certainly plenty of people who can appreciate it and there's a lot of validity to it. Um, you know, the same may be said of going out to old McDonald or Pacific Dunes or Sand Hills, you know, the, of the like. Um, you know, I think what becomes frustrating to me, you know, especially looking past and, you know, past 20, 30 years, you know, are the lost opportunities, if you will. And because the focus wasn't necessarily on creating good golf, but it was creating golf for the sake of selling homes, uh, you know, or other particular reasons. 
And so those golf courses ended up taking a back seat, you know, to which essentially, um, you know, should have been different, should have been a different business model, could have taken less resources to construct, less resources to, you know, to manage and maintain, Um, you know, the quality of the design could have probably been better if they wouldn't have rushed to get it in the ground. Um, you know, but, you know, those golf courses were built for particular reasons. And, you know, I think for home developers, housing developers, they made a bunch of money and were extremely successful. It wasn't what was good for golf, but it's certainly what was good for houses and, you know, housing developers. And as you look forward to the next 10 or 15 or 20 years in your life, how do you think that Hertz and Fry and you all contributed to that modern, and I'd say after World War II, maybe after the 70s, and now Jason, you, and Dana Fry, what is your direction? Is it back to the tiny little things? Is it back to the things that have been lost over time? Or have you invented something new that just uh, people are going to be blown away by the next golf course they see that's done by you and Dana? You know, Jim, I think that what's really interesting about, you know, work, obviously working with Dana, you know, many of your listeners know that his background was working in construction for Tom Fazio, and he had opportunity to help shape, you know, many of Tom's, uh, you know, best courses back in the late 80s and, you know, early 90s. Uh, and so, you know, he learned things a specific way. But the reason why I admire Dana and like working with him so much is because it, it, it's not just a one type of golf course, you know, has to be built. We work on so many different types of projects and styles. You know, that's one thing that we really like that we don't get pigeonholed in the one direction, you know? So, I mean, we can start to talk about union league, you know, where it was a merriment of, you know, huge amounts of earth moving, you know, and maybe the, you know, Fazio's, you know, big bulk grading kind of technique, but then, it was all also hand in hand with me going out with ecologists out to the Pine Barrens region who knew nothing about golf, but selecting plant species and then taking the crews and going up to Pine Valley so that then we can restore that particular site once we were all said and done, you know, with, you know, roughly 15 types of, of native plant materials and, you know, creating this unique ecology at that golf course. That, you know, then one of our largest projects right now that's under construction is a, a massive restoration of Donald Ross's oldest golf course in Florida, actually the oldest club in Florida, which is Bel Air Country Club in, you know, near Clearwater. And I mean, it was painstaking, the process that we went through. The club was built in 1897, was started with six holes. They hired Donald Ross to come in in 1915 and he built 36 he came back in and then remodeled his own golf courses in 1924. So we converted all of his 1915 uh, drawings, which are primarily just cross sections and notes, you know, plans uh, into modern day working documents. Anything in 1924 that he changed then got also uh, digitized, you know, computerized. And then that superseded any of the segments from 1915. And it's going back in the ground painstakingly as close as we can possibly get it. Um, you know, for a modern era. And so far different, you know, far different, you know, than anything that we work at at, uh, Union League or then, you know, could go to South Course at Arcadia Bluffs, which was, you know, 
it's there's no replica hole there, but I mean, it was essentially in the same style as Chicago Golf Club. You know, I think Dana personally made something like 13 or 14 trips to Chicago Golf Club. And when we were up there, you know, it's large greens with, you know, almost the same type of maintenance aspects and the hard edge collars. I mean, it looks nothing <laughs> like anything else that we've done in the past, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, you know, and then some of our other new newer projects are, you know, we're, we're working on par three golf courses. I mean, completely out of the box, reversible golf courses, uh, you know, so that you can play it as, you know, a cradle type of course with maybe only a hundred yards, or then you can, and that's an 18 hole course, but then they can set it up as a nine hole course and play par threes up to 200 yards and this great flexibility, you know, and, and one golf course, you know, really ends up having, you know, eight different ways or so to play it, uh, you know, and I think that's also cool of what's happening, right. What COVID's done guys. I mean, it's in this sort of open world of golf. Now it's taken the shackles off of so many of us. You know, I think that a lot of us probably were really interested in trying new things, but we're probably a little afraid to do it, or at least, you know, some of us or many of us, you know, and I think that, Hey, listen, you go out and you propose a 12 hole golf course anymore. And, People shrug their shoulders and go, why not? That sounds interesting. Tell me more about it. 20 years ago, they would have went next. <laughs> Who else are we talking to? <laughs> and so it's, you know, and I think that that's what's so cool, you know, about at least our business with Dana and I is that you know, we got to the point in our careers now that we've got enough credibility that when we can go out, we can start to look at particular projects. And if they are in an area we'd like to work in, people we'd like to work with, maybe a design style or a unique site. And, you know, and, and if, and if not, if it doesn't tick some of those boxes off, you know, then we're in a position to, you know, go next. Um, I got a great word of advice from Bill core about oh, a year and a half ago, I guess it was. And we were having this little, it was, you know, it was again, some ASGCA members and some not. And we went out and we we're at, um, we we're in Arizona right? At one, at one of his courses, I can't remember, his talking stick, might have been talking stick. Wecopaw, take that back, we're Wecopaw. And we were doing a little session afterwards, sort of a Q&A, and he was sitting across the table from me. And uh, and I said, oh, Bill, excuse me, I'm getting a phone call. And I walked out of the room, and I came back in. He looked at me, and he goes, well? And I said, well, what? And he goes, you got the job, didn't you? And <laughs> that's what it was. I was waiting for a phone call to see if we had been awarded this project. And I said, how did you know? And he goes, because I can see the smile on your face. And he just looks at me and he goes, I'm going to give you an unsolicited word of advice. And I said, what's that, Bill? And he goes, you're getting to the point in your career now where you don't have to say yes to every single job. And as a matter of fact, it's just as important to say no. And that was, uh, you know, yeah. that was something that stuck with me. Hey, the ability hey, to say no is, is yeah. powerful once you get... Oh. <laughs> once you get to a certain place, once you get the right, yeah, you, you got to get, get there first, point, or maybe yeah. not. Maybe you just you just say no, and it you know makes you more elusive and more mysterious. But Jason, <laughs> you said something a, a minute ago that that hit a note, and you said about this is in the context of Jim's question about modern courses versus golden age courses, and and we we tried to define modern courses a little bit, and you said there's so much more diversity in the in the modern course uh, and, and variety and. I think that, and I want to get your reaction on this, and it goes ties into what you were just saying. There seemed to be a period, like kind of in the late '90s, early 2000s, when 
I think the variety of styles of golf courses that existed at that time was as great as it has ever been. And Jim, I'm not saying it's better than, than the courses of the 1920s. I'm just saying the those styles and expressions of architecture were as great. You had, you know, the, Tom Fazio and and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus and Art Hills and those big companies building golf courses. You had the rise of the minimalist movement because Pacific Dunes was here. Tom Doak and, and and Gill was getting started and bringing this new naturalistic expression into it, which hadn't existed before and people were starting to pay attention to that and get on board and developers were starting to see it golf was traveling into regions and territories that developers would never take it before the conventional wisdom was you you built golf where people already were or already wanted to be going and then you had iconoclasts like pete Dye was still active you had mike strands who was who was working jim ang who were and they were just they had the ability uh to go out and take what was in their head and put it in the ground. And golfers, I think, responded to all of that. At that point in time, up in the early 2000s, it was all fair game. Everything was legitimate. Golfers were responding to all of it. And then as we moved over the next 15 years, it seemed that golf, most golf development, premium golf development, for any reasons you want to say it, started to kind of move in the naturalist direction. Everything started, you know, these guys, Bill and Ben, Gil, Tom, uh, Jim, people who were sort of the underground before and started this movement of naturalism, this minimalism, this rebellion almost, this this throwback way of building golf courses like they used to be built in the links, that started to take predominance and took over really. And, and there seemed to be for a period of time less enthusiasm for a Jim Ang. I mean, he's out of the business now almost. You know, Mike Strands passed away. Um, you know, the, the Pete Dye always kind of occupied his own category. And, and there was even sort of a looking down the nose at some of the work of, of, of Fazio and Nicholas and some of, the, some of the big firms. What I always appreciated about, about you and, and Dana, uh, especially over the last few couple of years, is you guys always seem to resist that. You, you, you are so diverse. You're, you were always a counterpoint to this naturalist, holistic, linksy style movement of golf. And, and, and you always kind of just, whatever the project was, it, it was. So I wanted to ask you, get your comment on that and ask you, amongst all the projects that you do and you were able to kind of keep your independence from a trend, what is the, is there one thing that, that you think is essential to your work? Is there one crucial thing that you've always wanted to convey in your golf courses that does kind of unite all of the work that you and Dane have done? Um. I mean, there are, well, I mean, there are some, I don't know if they're obvious answers, Derek. I mean, so, you know, for one, one thing that I always truly believe in, and it's just because of what my background was, regardless of what type of golf course it is or the environment that it's in, it truly is about environmental sustainability or just sustainability in general. That means the economic, social, um, you know, and environmental aspects, uh, you know, of that particular golf course. And so that, to me is incredibly important. And so, you know, that golf course is there to serve an owner, a community, whether that's a transient community that's coming in like a Sand Hills, you know, where they're just coming in for, you know, small you know groups at a time, or whether that's a municipal golf course, uh, Derek. And so, you know, that, you know, and the questions then become, you know, so how do you do that, right? So what are the social and environmental aspects? You know, and that just goes back to literally decades of training 
you know, on how you integrate that golf course to the best that you can possibly do it within that natural environment and within that community. And, you know, that's something that I take, whether it's a Arcadia Bluffs or a Union League or a Bel Air or, you know, it doesn't matter. I take that, you know, and our company then hence takes that approach every single time. Now, that's not necessarily so evident, you know, if you were to go and play those golf courses, right? I mean, you'd have to ask the questions and study and understand, you know, what it went in to design and building that particular venue. You know, then you can find out, you know, exactly, you know, how he did it and what that means. You know, does that mean that, you know, that there's a different uh, strategy playing on a particular golf hole? No, you know, that's not what that means. But that but just the reason why that golf course was built there, how it exists and how it continues to function well uh, is incredibly important. You know, there's, I, I tell you these sort of stories or we all do, but I mean, these small lessons, you know, I'll never forget about two years ago, I was in Houston working on a municipal project, you know, and, and um, you know, one of the things, you know, that at the time, you know, I'm thinking about, well, you know, what's important about this project, you know, how are we going to convey you know, our design expression, you know, and, and put our collective energy and thought into making this such an important, you know, venue. And we're at this public meeting and, you know, I must've said something, you know, the gentleman had triggered him and he, he stood up and he came over next to me and he addressed the city council. And he says, I guess, folks, I just want to explain something to you, the importance of this golf course. Right. And I'm thinking at the very moment, I'm thinking he's going to start to talk about par fours, par fives and things like that. But he said, you know, I'm a Midwesterner. I moved down to Houston you know, a number of years ago. And he said, you know, I didn't have any friends. So I came out here and my wife and I were here and I came out because I started playing golf. And he said, so I'm playing with, you know, these, these guys and they became my friends. And he said about uh, you know two years into our move, my wife suddenly passes away. And he says, I was crushed, despondent, didn't know what to do with my life. And so he says, and I stopped because I didn't do anything. And he said, so I stopped going out and playing golf. And he said, and my friends, you know, they were, they didn't understand what was happening. And so they came, they found me and, you know, found out what had happened. And they literally drug me back to the golf course day after day, after day, after day. And so he stands there. I still get shivers to this day. And he said, for everybody sitting in this room debating the importance of this golf course and the money that we're spending and how it affects, you know, our community. He said, this golf course literally saved my life. He said, and he looks at me and he goes, and I want you to remember that, remember what you're doing. And he says, and you know, he goes, I understand you, everybody's got a passion for it. You talk about the design aspects and he says, and you get, you know, everybody gets animated and he goes, but, Seriously, he said, the social aspect of what you're doing literally saves lives. And he, and he went and he sat, sat down. And that's till the day I quit working and way beyond, I will take, you know, that particular instance as such a powerful voice in my memory. And those are the things, that's the attitude, I guess, Derek, that Dana and I, you know, then, you know, take to all of these different projects. You know, and, and whether or not, you know, it's going to be that municipal golf course. But, you know, we all look at it as an aspect of, listen, Arcadia Bluff South, different venue. But you know what? I mean, it's fathers and sons and friends that are going there to play golf and enjoy that golf course and debate the merits of Seth Rayner, right? And Charles Banks and, you know, and C.B. <laughs> McDonald. But while they're doing it, I mean, they are, you know, they're having this social bonding. 
right? I mean, that's, you know, that's what that venue is made for. That's what we want people to go there and to debate our design and our architecture. And is it, you know, was it a, a faithful imitation, if you will, right? And have that experience, you know, and if we would have put out a different type of design style, you know, and just big, you know, blob bunkers and flowing lines and, you know, something that was the antithesis of that, you know, would it have triggered that type of a debate? Would it have triggered that type of social interaction? Probably not. Probably would have been something completely different. Well, that also speaks to just even uh, something more just deep down and fundamental about golf. I mean, there's a reason why there are over 15,000 golf courses in the United States, (laughs) Uh, you know, and we can, we can talk about, you know, why, there's not better or more interesting architecture at, you know, 99% of them, but <laughs> they are the places where people come together. And, and even, even at the, the low budget municipal course or the, you know, the nine holder that somebody grew up playing, like the, that's where, you know, as you just, to, to your point, relationships are forged. There's an emotional attachment to even those courses. And I, I mean, the good debate could be Jim, right? Like, you can have both. You can have a, a, a place of gathering and a and a, a fairly low cost, accessible city course, but it could also have you know, uh, you could move the bunkers around a little bit to make it a little more interesting. And there are things you can do about it. But but golf is a social game, and it always has been. And we sometimes have, in architectural circles kind of for, overlook that point. I can, Jason, have, I can't believe what you just said. For the last ten minutes, you took the wind out of my sails because <laughs> I have been I have been talking about the little nuances of architecture has it been lost and you didn't take out the wind out of my sails on a negative point you reinforced to me that sometimes that architecture and the critic and all of us can be debatable But that's irrelevant to the social part of the golf and what it brings to the people who play it. I got to get off my uh, 10-foot high horse and (laughs) quit thinking about that every little bump and roll should be analyzed. And I got to get on my my, uh, helmet with two beers on the side making sure that I still have fun playing the game that that gentleman described to you as being saving his life. And that's we, as important. Jim, I mean, it's, but, you know, the, all, analyzing all the little bumps and things, I mean, that's, it's providing compelling architecture, you know, and that's why Derek, you're asking about, you know, the sort of the, we got into this design debate or discussion about modern design but I think that that's what becomes interesting. You know, that's what's so fascinating about golf is because even though you might not particularly personally like a um, you know, one design style or one golf course, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have an appreciation for it. To me, you know, it's a lot like, you know, art. I mean, it's, you know, I'm a big fan of Jackson Pollock. You know, if you guys know who that is, I mean, it was, you know, ultra modern and paint splashes and splatters and, 
you know, and, and I, you know, to me, I just sort of get absorbed in some of his artwork and paintings. And, you know, and some people look at it and go, my God, my five-year-old could have done that. And I'm like, yeah, but your five-year-old wasn't thinking, you know, to the level of depth, you know, that Jackson Pollock was when he was making it. And so it's, but you can still have an appreciation for that, even though you might prefer Monet, right? And that's okay. Right. That's what makes the diversity is what makes the world go around, you know, and keep keep everything interesting. But, you know, there, there has to be also, you know, there are certain facets to every golf course that have to make it compelling for bigger audiences. You know, I mean, so, you know, these are all these I take all these experiences and it helps me shape my you know thoughts, my design thoughts in my career. You know, my father, who introduced me to the game, you know, turns 80 here in another couple of months. Um and you hadn't seen very much of them during the pandemic. And finally, we got an opportunity to play golf. And it was at a facility and they had these forward sets of tees and, you know, rated for both men and ladies. And I remember going around with them and we shared this wonderful experience, father and son, you know, that we haven't been able to do, you know, for a number of years. You know, and this is somebody who, since I was five years old, you know, my best, some of my best memories were walking golf courses, hearing your clubs, you know, clink against one another and your you know, metal spikes. Um, and so he puts his arm around me and he says, you know, that was such a special day, Jason, you know, and, you know, and, and um, hard for me to get through that, but, you know, uh, um, you know, how special that was to be able to spend together. But he said, something to keep in mind is you continue your career. He said, you know, I was able to play this golf course, you know, I can get around it. It was still compelling to me. It was fun to play. Um, you know, I can still hit shots, but it wasn't overly demanding where I was so frustrated that I didn't enjoy it. And he says, and if this golf course weren't designed in this manner, he said the experience would have been completely different and we would not have shared this special bonding day together that we've had, you know, and him going, you know, off into his eighties now, I mean, there's always sort of this perception that those days are becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. And then I just project out and I said, well, how many people are there that are like me? you know, with their fathers, with their mothers, you know, their sons, aunts, uncles, whatever the case may be. And how important is it to take those small design lessons and incorporate them into your work? Because, you know, those are going to be you know, some of those lasting legacies, you know, that people like Jim and I always leave behind. Yeah, no, that reminds me of, a, of some of an experience I, I had. I was playing, this was a number of years ago, I was playing around with, uh, with my father-in-law and not a not a big hitter very you know he's a if he breaks a hundred he was he had a good day uh, um and we played at a golf course we actually played with with bobby weed and uh chris monty it was a course that they had uh, redesigned down in florida and there were sand everywhere sandscapes and it was in front of the tee box and around the sides of the holes a very dramatic very attractive course one you know my i, I was switched on and, and into it immediately but my my father-in-law was not, you know, he didn't hit the driver very far. And, you know, for a couple holes, he was kind of getting frustrated because he saw the sand and, and Bobby sensed this and he went over and told him, he, he said, look, Tom, you only need to hit it from you, the tees you're playing. If we move you up here, you only need to hit it 40 yards to get over the sand. It's, you know, it's, it doesn't come into play and you have all this grass to play to. And this just hit her. So he hits it and he's, and you know, he said, I know Tom, you know, we're up here at the green. There's a bunker over here, but look at all this green over to the left and you can just play it around this way. And he started to talk to him about that. And by the, by the end of the day, after we'd gone through the round, my father-in-law wouldn't have recognized that it was that playable. He would have seen all the, the things that, that 
maybe the architect wants you to see, but he wouldn't have recognized all of the negative space that you can play toward. And it, he, he loved the course. If, if he had played it by himself or with his buddies, they would have came away, you know, with a completely different impression of that golf course. But because he was, you know, he was, uh, it was illuminated how much grass there was to play to, to, he had a great time. Is, are there, are there things like that? And we're talking about playability and the lesson you're taking from from your father is to keep that in mind and that golf can be a, a game of a lifetime um, if we learn the lessons of that and and think about everybody and, and provide everybody a, a way to play rather than you know in decades past you know there were just might have been no option for your father to play a, you know certain golf courses but are there things that you wish that you could communicate to golfers when they play the golf courses that you've been involved with designing? Does it have something to do with, with agronomy or setup or just playing strategies or, you know, cause golf can be golf design. Like anything can be when you put a product out there and people react to it, you kind of lose control over it at some point, you know, it's out there. You don't, you can't control the narrative anymore. Right. They, they, it's up to them to, to come and, and accept it or, or understand it. But if you could get in the golfer's ear, is there anything that you generally would like to explain to people? So I think that that's really an interesting, you know, clutter question. And I do think that the younger generations, you know, that are coming back behind, you know, ours, they tend to do more research on the facilities that they're in the courses they're going to go play. I think that there's a bigger appetite for that. You know, back when I was, you know, on the academic side of it, you know, and you know, Jim or Dill or my other professors at the you know college, you always talked about sense of place, right? And the communicating the sense of place and that the best golf courses are now integrated into that particular environment. And you would, you know, before it would be harder to sort of craft these messages, even though you would do that. But, you know, nowadays, I mean, with the advent of the Internet and mobile apps and things like that, you know, if you take an opportunity, you know, to be able to, you know, to do a bit of writing or sketching or things, you know, there are avenues for people to be able to consume those types of messages. You know, it's great that you were there with Bobby and he was able to explain that, you know, and that you made the day so much better. You know, and you're right. If he has if he wasn't there, you know, we as golf architects or you know, others, you know, how do you then communicate that message? Right. And I think that there are avenues to be able to do that. Do you take it personal, Jason, when somebody looks at your golf courses and don't understand them and throws the club down and says, this is dumb. Do you take it personal? I don't think I take it personal. I think that I look at it as an opportunity to educate. You know, I think that that becomes a real fascinating, you know, um, you know, standpoint if you will you know i i, I get my I, I give myself lessons because i'll do that you know whether it's on my golf course or one of you know one of our other colleagues you know but then i catch myself jim and i say well wait a minute you know let me think about why this happened or you know is there a particular different reason or am i looking at it incorrectly and so you know the, sometimes just the jump to a conclusion you know you end up at the wrong conclusion and, you know, that just goes way beyond golf, right? I mean, that, that permeates media, our media right now, and so much other things in our lives. Um, so do I take it personally? No, I just, you know, you might become fr frustrated and say, you know, maybe we have to do a better job of communicating. And you know, then the question becomes, how do you do that? Because we, we can't all stand on the tees, Derek. No, 
Yeah, you wish you could whisper, you know, it's like the scene in the in Annie Hall where, where he's having a philosophical argument and then he pulls in Marshall McLuhan and says, Tell him tell him why he's wrong. Life isn't doesn't work that way. But you exactly. me, you mentioned a minute ago, Jason, or just in that last thing you said about, you know, with our current in, uh, media and, and communication environment, right now, I mean, it, and it's not just golf, it's it's everything. Everybody is a critic. Everybody has a platform. Everybody has has Twitter, social media. Everybody can announce an opinion. Everybody has a, a, a mini brand, brand where they can convey their likes and dislikes and, and their opinions. Whereas in the, in the past, prior to the, you know, social media blowing up in the last 10 years, other industries like like food and and theater and movies had critics. You know, the newspapers employed critics. You had uh, yeah. Robert Parker judging wine, and you, I mean, these industries relied on critics, or if they didn't rely on them, they reacted to them. These the professional critic to kind of render judgments and guide the public and set the terms of the debate. Arts always had critics. You know. Uh, influential critics who who would discover new artists and bring them in, and and that's how movements happened and trends changed. Would golf be better off if we had more of a formal system of criticism, quote unquote, expert critics versus uh, this white noise of of a million different voices shouting their opinion over each other? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I I find it fascinating. I mean, for good and for bad, I guess. You know, I don't I don't know that it's ever going to change, Derek. I mean, I think that people, you you always have the Golf Digest, Golf Magazines. You always have sort of these, you know, I don't want to say, st- I guess, standards or something, you know, to the fact, you know, that they seemingly will always have a place, right? Um, and, and I don't think that that's, I don't think that's bad at all. But, you know, then you have all these other different avenues as technology changes. And, hey, listen, that's, you know, t- to think about it. Today is the slowest rate of technological change that the three of us and any of your listeners are going to have in their entire lifetime. That's how rapidly things change now. And so just the, you know, the way that we communicate and the avenues and the information that gets sent out and gets disseminated is just going to continually morph and change. And I think that we just all have to do as good of a job as we can to adapt to it, um, you know, and that's uh, and that's OK. You know, I, to me, I just look at it as more of an opportunity, not necessarily a negative. You know, I look at it and say, OK, you know, whether it's via podcasts or, um, you know, blogs or whatever the case may be, you know, you know, how do you engage that? How do you make the most of that opportunity to educate people and have a constructive conversation that's the biggest thing jim that i you know that i really search for you know when somebody is critiquing you know uh, my work or you know anybody's work it's just i just all i care about is that it's constructive if it's constructive criticism and you can have an honest debate over the merits of something uh you know then hey listen i'll have as thick a skin as anybody you know that that's all good that you know that's good in our industry that's good in art that's good in food that's good in anything um, you know, it's, I think that the frustrating thing, Derek, is, is that when it becomes, you know, personal attacks, you know, on people, you know, that type of, you know, attitude doesn't have any place in our industry or any industry for that matter. And I agree totally, Derek, when it becomes personal and it becomes from the media, uh, for their advantage to, to, uh, become negative on something to show them that, that somehow they have a more of a wisdom than you did, and you burned your whole t- entire life creating this design and building it, and then for a media person to come and instantly either uh, uh, promote it or uh, de- uh, 
or or think of all the negative things they could say for the advancement of the media. That's the part I struggle with, Jason. And 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 we all do it. I but that, do it. isn't that the essence of social media. I mean, how many how many voices on Twitter, for instance, or, or Facebook are truly interested in, in the, the art or the subject or getting to a truth or advancing knowledge or appreciation of it. It's always about getting, get, having the loudest voice, having the most <laughs> likes, having, getting, getting more followers, well, stirring up shit. Like that's why, that's, hence choice. my, hence my question about, you know, would it, is it more, <laughs> isn't it more constructive, you know, to have something, uh, you know, a, more of an expert viewpoint on it, which you know, there, there. Are, you mentioned magazines, and I guess our the rankings that we do is is one form of feedback on, well, you know, where where the art is and what the appreciation is. But yeah, just hearing everybody shout and you know, tr- as Jim said, promote you know, advance their own their own cause is. I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm just I'm worn, <laughs> worn out. <laughs> well. I mean, I, yeah, right, right. I mean, it, but but I think though, Derek. I mean, it, it, as business people and artisans, you know, folks like Jim and I. I mean, we just, especially you know, as you move along in your career, you just have to make decisions on who you engage. You know, I mean, it's and if it's white noise and if it's just the people just trying to get the clicks and the likes, I mean, you have to recognize that and just sort of put it into the background because it can yeah. become all-consuming. You know, and that's not what I, you know, nor Jim, that's not what we want to do, you know, with the remainder of our careers. I mean, it's, you know, we, we want to have, listen, we want to go and work for, you know, good people on interesting projects, interesting sites, put things that are compelling into the ground that have an impact on, you know, the, the places and the community that they're in, have a lasting effect, um, you know, and, and also bring in the next generation, uh, you know, of golf course architects and superintendents and, um, you know, and continue. Listen, we, we all, the three of us got into doing some form of golf because of golf, right? I mean, we love, we love the game and we love the things that it brings to our lives and the people that, you know, we share our lives with. And I think that when you keep that vision and that's the focus on what we do, you know, and you have that passion for it, the more successful you're going to be and the greater your legacy is going to be. Derek, he just answered my reflection uh, point of view. Jason, I I came home on a plane last night, didn't get to bed till one in the morning, had got up at 4 a.m. And it was one of those days. And I reflected and I said to, and I would say to anybody, every golf course that I've done, they're my personal friend. And I love every one of them until I die. And from 4 a.m. to 1 o'clock again the next day, you take these things personal and you love all of them and you want to defend all of them. Jason, if you don't quit smiling today, I know that you won't (laughs) defend them and you won't love them anymore. That's your answer was, that's why I'm here because that's what I do. And uh, I thank you for that. I thank you too. Listen, my friend, we've known each other a long time. You know, that's, uh, I would say that probably even more important than the golf courses I put into the ground or the relationships of the people that I, you know, have forged throughout my life and my career. I've been incredibly fortunate. I mean, through, 
um, through the university that I was, uh, you know, so fortunate to attend and all the architects and people that I've met there, um, you know, and then took the opportunity, you know, to, to teach here at Ohio State and all the kids, you know, that have gone through now and they're probably just as more, uh, probably more important of my legacy than anything. You know, I mean, it's, I've got uh, students who were, Jim, some of them you probably, you know, personally interacted with. George Helley, for example, who uh, helped build Terra Ida and then went on to build St. Patrick's with Tom Doak. He was a former student of mine. Um, I visited with he and his family when I was in Ireland recently. I have students who are doctorate turf professors now, golf professionals, uh, you know, and who are advancing you know, their own careers and bringing, you know, just this awesome game and profession that we're part of to millions more people, you know, and that's, if there's anything else besides my golf courses or maybe even more important than my golf courses that, you know, if I'm remembered, you know, in another hundred years or so, I hope it's for that. There you go, Derek. It's not about, (laughs) it's not about the, the, the pat on the back. It's because you love it, and you'll continue to love all of them and defend all of them. Uh, and whether it's social, whether it's uh, it, bringing something new and, and different to the design, uh, Jason talks about that, and uh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And it's a good reminder that for all of us that if you treat people right, and you extend the hand, just like the ASGCA is attempting to do, and you do good, earnest, honest work, you have a place in whatever profession you have. And, you know, go, and, and Jason, you and Dana are on a, on a rocket right now. You guys are, are having some, had some great projects. You have great projects. So you don't need a pep talk. Jim, <laughs> you've given, you, you're in a great position to give Jim the pep talk that he, that he needs today. <laughs> Jim doesn't need any pep talk. He's had an awesome career and still continues to do it. He does. It was just a moment of reflection, Derek. We all have them. It's the late night (laughs) syndrome. It's it's that long flight (laughs) home. When when you're putting your head on your pillow at 2 a.m., there's no telling what what film is going to be showing. (laughs) Exactly. And, And I love Jason's smile. And I'm telling you, he should just tell the guy that's the incoming president to get lost. <laughs> I don't know about that. We've got enough people in power who are trying to apply the method. <laughs> no, he's Bert's going to do a great job. I'll be there. I'll be there to help him, Jim. That's cool. That's cool. Jason, it was fun to reflect and 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 hear you talk about design and many other things. Good stories and. Uh, I'll take away uh, a number of things. You're, you're around with your dad and his advice, Bill Coors' advice to <laughs> sometimes uh, no can turn into a lot of yeses down the road. Yeah. It's, Derek's been fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Jim, thank you so much, too. No problem, man. I could do this every day. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank Be you. Be good, guys. Thank you. Jim, I... 
right. I actually did not know that you and Jason went that far back. That was a cool story that he shared with us. And it was, I felt like a nice moment of, of connection uh, between the two of you. But um, that was a that was a, a discussion where I was happy just to kind of sit back and listen yeah. to the two of you talk to each other and, and to hear, yeah. really to hear Jason talk. It was my first time really, you know, spending time with him. And uh, I just enjoyed listening to his thoughts. He has a really interesting perspective. It's kind of scary that... Uh... It really is scary that that uh, my honesty once again re- either rears its ugly head, or it's it shows that my honesty resonated with Jason. That he he there's a thousand plans that are in the trash, but the one that he, <laughs> as he said, the one that he remembers is the one that uh, took fourteen holes to find a sense of accomplishment and. I guess I didn't hand out a ribbon and a medal and a trophy on the first hole. No juice boxes. <laughs> no juice boxes or sliced oranges. He had to go. He had. He had to go to the 14th hole to get some uh, some uh, satisfaction that somebody was really looking, and that that was touching for me, Derek. Uh, I, I didn't expect it. Uh, it seemed like so long ago, but uh, that that is. Uh, uh, as a teacher by training, uh, th- that was important to me. That, yeah, he clearly that, he clearly took that lesson and, and metabolized yeah. it, or whatever that yeah. experience was. He's yeah. very fond of you, and now he's you know over the course of his career, he's he's internalized that to some degree. I'm not going to yeah. give you all the credit for it, but one but one small fragment of of, of the the designer he be, he came to be, and some yeah. little piece of that day that you spent with him out out in the Denver Plains went into a production of something like Union League National, which is maybe yeah. not the golf course that, that um, you would ever see yourself building, but it's no. something that he and Dana are probably the perfect architects to execute. Um, and it's, you know, we, we didn't spend that much time talking about it, but it is a, it is a Calusa Pines, you know, Shadow Creek mm-hmm. type of yeah. uh, redevelopment and reimagining of, a, of an older golf property. And I am going to go... Uh, try to see it the first of September because I want to see how Di- how Dana unleashes his movements, how he uh, and uh, unleashing is is you know kind of a uh, dramatic uh, uh, wording, but I want to see Dana and, and his creativity. And I thought what was really important was that Jason looked at at it in a much different avenue uh, as he talked about going to study the ecological. Of merits of the of the surrounding land and what they could bring back to to this union league, uh, two different types of approaches to the same architect uh, architecture of the golf course. How important is that? So that it's not so one dimensional. It's two, three, four dimensions of 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 thought going into this. And when Jason talked about how important that was to him, the sustainability and the ecological factors that comes back. Uh, that was that was good energy, and how many architects uh, of the single camp uh, have that ability to have that next stage of of application of architecture? That was freaking cool. Yeah, yeah, and that's a that's a big swing. And, and you know, when you swing big, you can miss big. I, I don't think yeah. it's going to be a miss. Uh, you know, I th- they've done things like this 
in the past that right. that have been very successful. I expect it to be great. I'm actually, by the time this podcast comes out, I will have seen Union League National. Oh, good. Um, and hopefully we can, it's something that we'll be eager to talk about at some point in the future. I mean, it's a, it's right. a complete, it's, you know, the, the, the modern day, you know, this decade's Calusa Pines or something on yeah. that scale of where you yeah. take a, a, a piece of land and create the land first, the land forms, and then you put golf holes on it. Um, yeah. And then that, that was interesting about the, the, the population of the, eco, the ecological system and the trees yep. and the, and the yep. wild, the, the plant life. And yep. um, that's just as big a part of that particular project as the bunkers, water features, tea placement, growing Green. grass. Oh, yeah. I thought when I asked him about if there was anything that he could, he would say to, you know, the, you know, the theoretical golfer that stands on the tee of one of his courses, knowing his background, um, uh, in, in turf grass and, uh, agronomics and his expertise. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, that he, why he and Dana are such a good team is because they, they do have somewhat different, uh, specialties. They both can do it each other do, but they kind Agreed. of come from different directions a little bit is I thought he was going to say something about, you know, grasses or plant, you know, something, something like yeah. that. Like, you know, yeah. golfers, yeah. golfers, as we know, always so often judge a, a golf courses when it's good, bad or great on the grass, you know, yeah. do, are the greens great? Is it yeah. green? You know, yeah. how does it look visually? to have good lies in the fairway. And I just wondered, I was wondering if he had some, some wisdom to shine or, or to share with, with any of the, the people who might listen to this, uh, a little yeah. tip about what to look for in, a, in grass or agronomy yeah. or, or, yeah. or greens, varietals, anything, but he took the high road. <laughs> yep. He took the high road and, and the high road, as well as the things that I've always talked about, how many things that are thrown into the to the golf course that some people will never even realize? And should they or 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 do they have to? Jason says they don't. Jason says that they get to experience it, but there's other factors being one of those things social that uh, are as important to him as the greens, tees, bunkers, and fairways, uh, the ecological side. And so I got to see a part of uh, of an architect's thinking that uh, it it wasn't just a simplistic uh, jazzy greens or jazzy bunkers. There was way more to it, and that's the part that I I hope that people take away from it. There's more to it. There's yeah. six and seven and eight levels. Yeah, and even even you know in our in our talk prior to having Jason on, we talked about the difference between a thriller or yeah. a mystery or a horror yeah. movie and then something that had a little more depth to it. Yeah. But you know, there, there's something to be said for being swept up in the emotion of, of a good book or a good yeah. golf experience. And yeah. while we want to break down the architecture and the strategy and, and we, and a lot of us, me included, see great value in learning the lessons of the links and yeah. returning to that st a specific style of golf uh, and the courses of the 1920s that derived from that, and those are the—that's the meat, that's the literature. But there's something to be said for what uh, Tom Fazio or Dana Fry would do when he was working with Tom Fazio, or, or and, and architects many do now in the modern age for the modern course for to placate you to give you an example. Something to be said for even landscaping a course like Union League that's National, right. creating that's it. Right. 
even though if, if it's not authentic or, or native, but if you create this environment, people come together and that has an impact on how they experience the golf course. If they think it's beautiful and they get lost and they're looking around, you know, they're swiveling their head and they appreciate their surroundings, whether it's, it's real or not. That's the same as this guy going into the meeting and saying, golf, this golf course saved my life. Yeah. He experienced something on those grounds that That's mattered right. more than bunker placement or, you know, opening, you know, you got to buy the open angle into the green or, or stupid little bump, yeah. the line of charm. Who gives us crap? I had <laughs> a social experience that has been recaptured on the golf course. And I said it to Jason. I, I hope he didn't think it uh, negative in any way. He did take the wind out of my sail. Here I am talking about lines of angles and the directions and strategy. And Jason says, it saved this man's life. Uh, come on. Is it really that important that everybody understands architecture? But if they understand the social part, Derek, he just convinced me that that was just as important. Well, of course, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have the environment, you can have the setting, you can have the social aspect, but also build in the subtlety and the nuance and the strategy and and all the things that that invigorate the playing of the game and not just the experience of the game. Um, yeah. So if you're going to have, a, if, if there's going to be a criticism of golf courses that are manufactured, it could be that sometimes they overdo the the visuals or the, the theatrics, the thriller aspect. <laughs> Yep, when they could also right. build in, you know, some yeah. of the more subtle aspects of it. The emotional side. The emotional side. Derek, how come in all these books that I read and I and I defend so rigorously, how come none of these books make me cry? How come a story and a man who who enjoys the game for what it is is as important as all the stuff that I've read for years and years and years? Whether than Simpson, Mackenzie, Ross, Thomas, blah, 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 Flynn, Hunter. They don't talk about the emotional part of the golf course. They spend their time writing about the uh, architectural and the strategy and the important things. Uh, were they just blowing smoke up everybody's, uh, you know what? Wow. We could we could get into that. They were writing it at, at a time when that those, those treatises – treaties uh, needed to be said it was a time of uh, intellectual development of the golf course and ideas um i'm sure they all responded to beautiful environments but that's one thing and i've I've said this to you before is that what mike kaiser got at a fundamental level was you can have all the the brilliant bunker placement and green contours you want but the emotional experience of being in a certain environment is what makes people fly across the country to be there Uh, and 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 as much as i I'm guilty of analyzing golf courses and holding them up to a certain strategic or analytical standard. I too respond most strongly to golf courses that make me feel something. Yeah. And, and, and it could just be the great company playing with my father or, or, or you, but it's just being in a certain place that makes it's, it just hits you. Some golf courses hit you in a, in a certain way. And that emotional element of playing golf is something that, 
is becoming more and more important to me as as an editor at a magazine to acknowledge yeah. that and not just bake it down into clinical components of a golf course. You have to have that elemental connection to the golf course, that emotional connection. And his emotional connection through the game of golf and his emotional connection through the people that he meets, he talks about what Bill Coor does for him and what the people he learned uh, uh, working uh, in the business, uh, the people he met, uh, the Gil Hanses. And I think to myself, for all of the times that we go to school to become trained in the profession of architecture and landscape, uh, uh, we're still driven by exactly what you said, the emotional part of it, the experience of it. Mike Kaiser gives you the bunkers, greens, and tees, but he also gave you waves of ocean blue. Yeah. And the waves of ocean blue sometimes steer, stir the soul more than any green tea or bunker relationship. Yeah. You know, just you saying that, I was just going to say one more thing before we sign off is, is, you know, he had, Jason had some nice recollections of, of, uh, Bill Core, they're meeting at Sand Valley and, yes. and they're sitting yes. across the table. Um, it is really profound the impact that Bill and Ben have when they show up somewhere, <laughs> even amongst their peers, even in a room full of full of yes. seventy other golf yes. course architects who have a collective level of experience that is yes. is a thousand years. Yes. Uh, it matters when they show up. It matters what they say. I've seen it. I've seen it in person. When Gil stands up in front of people at the, it, with this tartan blazer on and says something, it's different than when somebody else says it. They give that organization such credibility, yes. and their their words carry a lot of weight. And uh, it's sort of like a secret weapon that that if Jason can can use that uh, when he when he needs to convey a message to his quorum, if he can just yes. have you know, Bill and Ben show up for a yes. particular meeting, I get the message across. You 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 pick that you pick that right out of the interview with with Jason that the, the Bill's presence is is and he would downplay it so oh, much Derek yep, yep. you know he would mm-hmm. it, it's just old Bill Coor you know it's just old Bill Coor no BS it's not just Bill Coor it's what he brings it's the two little words he says it's the years of doing this it's all of those things that Bill and Ben bring when Gil stands up in front of the group. You know, he says that the ASGA, uh, Jason says that the American Society of Golf Course Architects are trying to welcome everybody as compared to what it was 30, about 30, 20, 30, 40 years ago. That is a fun feeling to know that these young kids are going to go and be able to hang around with Bill Coor. Yeah. We are losing the architects of our era uh, faster than I would want to even think about. Uh, Mr. Weisskopf, uh, 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 the list goes on and on and on. Mr. Herdson, on and on and on. Herdson's still around. I'm sorry. Arthur Hills. Uh, <laughs> Arthur Hills. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Derek. Thank you. Arthur Hills. Because uh, I think of that era. Yeah. Uh, but Jason's welcoming these young kids to be a part of that experience. And 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 I'll backtrack. Uh, speaking with 
Michael Hurdson, he is always willing to drop anything he's doing to help you with the history of, of architecture and the files and files and files that he has. And how smart of the ASGCA to bring these young kids in to hang around with these, no disrespect, old timers, so that they could pass that on. So Jason can make that feeling that he had with Bill Coor, maybe pass that on to somebody else. Yeah, and make make no mistake, that generation of designers have a lot to pass on. They may they not do. have they may not have been building the golf courses that we would prefer to see Love. built today, but Love. but their experience and what they did get to keep yeah. the profession alive and just their yeah. just their day to day nuts to bolts understanding yeah. of, of irrigation drainage all that stuff their their yeah. interactions with clients i mean i'm hopeful that the young guys who would are interested in going into the asgca soak that up and really appreciate the young people today have a hard time believing that things happened before they were born they're they're <laughs> <laughs> they yeah i mean their their world like started with the moment they, they were sentient uh, but there's a lot of things that that as as the great columnist Dave Anderson said, son, a lot happened before you were born. So, yeah. if they're yeah. willing to to, to listen and, and take that in and appreciate it, right. uh, they'll but they be better also, in their careers. But they also have to have their own individual individuality. Absolutely, uh, they, they can't be like them. Uh, they they have to have they have to bring their own uh, style, uh, but learn from others. That's pretty cool. Sure, you study the. Cool. I mean, you study. You read Alistair McKenzie, you study George Thomas, you study yep. that era. Yep. Also study the eras that came after. You, you don't have yeah. to be like them, but it's knowledge. You don't just, you don't stop studying history of of politics or war or world, you know, global interaction or markets up through a certain date and then just stop. It's, you know, yeah. you carry, carry it all the way through. That's all I'm saying. And how come Bill Coor hasn't written a book yet? It doesn't doesn't seem like the kind the guy that sits down in front of a computer. I'm not sure he knows how to turn the computer on. But, I guess he could write on a, a longhand, right? <laughs> but wouldn't he be the guy you'd want to read about? Wouldn't oh, you? Would, oh yeah. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't he, I would like to open up a a tattered old book in 50 years and read about every little thing that Bill Coor said. Yep. Because I know how important they are. Yet we will never, maybe we will. Don't say never. I agree. Never say never. But wouldn't you want to hear the, the words of wisdom of Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw uh, instead of some, I don't know, whoever, whoever. But I, I, they're all back here. They're all back here. They're over there. Points to the bookshelves for the and I, for yeah, those who don't sorry. have the visu- the uh, video. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, all my books that I consume, uh, I want to consume Bill Coor forever and ever and ever. That's right. That's right. That's one good thing about what we do, Jim. I hope others feel the same way. Is is it's not a book, but when we get to spend time with somebody like Jason Straka, he's sharing his some of his knowledge with us. There was probably a, a couple chapters worth of a, a book that we ta- we got to today, yeah. um, so that's you know podcasts are a form of of saving information and saving beliefs and passing it on in some form. But fair enough, you fair can't enough. put it on your bookshelf. So uh, you can't put it on your bookshelf. It won't have a nice and- red binder on it. <laughs> You're right, and and uh, we could go on forever with Jason, but it was the perfect time. 
and and the perfect uh, body of of discussion that needed to be done at this time. It was it was good. I, I enjoyed it. It was great to hear the two of you uh, reminisce a little bit, and obviously his <laughs> affection for you is obvious, and and yours for him as well. So, well, good. I dude. enjoyed it. Yeah. Did I don't know if Mackenzie ever said dude? Did he? His editors made him take it out, but I've seen the original manuscripts. It's all over. <laughs> Do you think Tillian Hass said that guy was a pretty cool dude? <laughs> I think he used the word chap. <laughs> yes, exactly. Perfect. That's right. a perfect stop right All right, there. Jim. Until next time, take care, my friend. Thank you. All right.